Hello and welcome to Audiobook Connection, behind the scenes with the creative teams. I'm Becky Parker Geist and I'm your host. Audiobook Connection is your place to learn about the audiobook creative process in discussions between the authors, narrators, producers, and post-production teams that bring them all together, as well as guests who have listened to the audiobooks and have questions for the creative teams. This podcast is sponsored by Pro Audio Voices, helping great stories come alive through audiobook production and marketing. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. I have the delight and honor to have with me Michelle Cobb. Michelle and I first met through Audio Publishers Association, and she has since moved on to Pub West. First of all, welcome, Michelle. Thank you. And yes, yeah, still at Audio Publishers Association as well. I just do double Beautiful. duty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was actually my first question. If you would, it would be great if you could give us a little bit more background for those who don't know you. Uh, and uh, yeah, tell, tell us more about what you're up to. Sure. So I have a long history uh, in audiobooks. I worked many, many years ago at LA Theaterworks and then at the BBC doing sales and marketing of audiobooks. And in 2014, I went out on my own and became a a full-time freelancer. And so myself and my business partner consult with different organizations from publishers to people not involved in the publishing industry, to podcasters, to audio, you know, retailers, to associations. So a lot of what I do right now is guide associations in trying to grow and build community because it's so important, especially in pandemic times, for us to stay connected. Um, That's a, a lot of what I'm doing these days. Beautiful. Great. I know that you've shared that you have spent a fair amount of time talking with librarians and kind of in the library world. Could you tell us a little bit more about the work that you've done in that arena? Sure. So when I was at the BBC for over a decade, it was BBC Audiobooks America, a lot of what I did was actually physically visiting libraries. Couldn't do that today, but five days a week, I would go see four libraries my with just myself or as part of the team that I led. So going in with various salespeople into different areas of the country, getting to know about each library system and understanding what their goals were, and then trying to pitch them on the various titles that we had available. Oh, interesting. Okay. And so one of, I know that this is an area that I hear so frequently from authors asking, like, how do I get my book into the libraries? You know, and our focus mostly here on Audiobook Connection, of course, is audiobooks, but it's that same question. And, you know, certainly I invite you to answer as, you know, as broadly in terms of format as you'd like. But what are, I guess my first question would be, what are the the avenues into the libraries for authors now? So first of all, distribution in a digital world is very different than it was, you know, 15 years ago when you were going in and selling a cassette or a CD. So now you're working through a digital aggregator, someone like Overdrive or Hoopla or Biblioteca. 
they have the salespeople going into the libraries selling the system on which the items are available and then also which titles are available. So working very closely with those aggregators to participate in sales, for instance, and make sure that they are aware of your new titles that are coming out. That's one way of reaching libraries. Now, for the most part, if you're an independent author, you're going to be working through like an ACX or a Findaway Voices or a Big Happy Family or an Author's Republic. So the first question to ask is, if you want your titles in libraries, does your distributor reach that market? And, you know, I grew up in public libraries. I'm a big proponent of public libraries. So I always thought about my own titles and for the publishers that I work for, it's important to be in the library. So if you want your titles available in the library, using a vendor that gets to those library vendors is important. Now that puts you a layer apart from the library vendor themselves. So you are relying on your aggregator to tell you, is there a sales opportunity? Can I do a price drop? Can I, you know, participate in the June is audiobook month sale? That always seems to happen because June is audiobook month. (laughs) So it's maintaining those relationships with your aggregator if possible. But also, uh, there was a really fantastic session at PubWest's virtual conference this February where uh, a librarian from the Santa Monica Public Library, Patty Wong, talked about how this is a really interesting time for small publishers because in a digital world, when you go to ALA conference, your footprint is exactly the same as Penguin Random House. Your booth is the same in a digital world. So now's the opportunity if you are a smaller publisher to be taking that moment to get your products introduced at the library conferences. Now, not everyone can afford that and not everyone's going to take a whole booth, but there's also an opportunity to make sure that you are spending time in your local communities getting to know your librarians. Pandemic times make this a little bit difficult because you can't just go into the library and say, hey, who's your collection development librarian? I'd like to, you know, let them know about my product or I'd like to offer me giving a talk about my expert topic. Uh, And I do that as a volunteer thing for the library. So I'm giving you content and you can hopefully purchase my book. So developing the relationships with local librarians is a really great way to start especially if you're an independent author. So you might not be at the level of buying a digital booth anywhere, but certainly taking some time to go in to the, you know, even if it's five or six libraries around you, mm-hmm. getting to know what those libraries are looking for, encouraging them to purchase your product, but also providing something to them. Right. Now, does that have any does the impact go at all beyond those libraries, like getting into those libraries? Would that have any impact on getting them beyond that? What has the most impact to getting beyond, you know, that face-to-face moment is obviously participating in a sale through an aggregator or getting a review. Those are very important to librarians. They have lots of titles that they're looking at. So if you can get your title reviewed in a journal, Kirkus, Publishers Weekly, Library Journal, Booklist, for if you're in audiobooks, Audiophile, having that title reviewed puts that in front of a lot of different librarians' faces and they 
are not going to be able to read or listen to every title that is published. So that's a really important piece of getting noticed. Great. I want to come back to the thing about the relationship with the aggregator. So assuming that we are submitting through a digital distributor that is putting them are these titles into those, you know, into Overdrive and Hoopla and Biblioteca. Or what do you recommend if there is a step beyond that? How do we develop a relationship with those companies and start to ask those questions or provide value? So a lot of times, if you look inside like the dashboard of some of the aggregators, they will have sales opportunities. That's, I think, really important. Like I know if you go into Find Away Voices, they will say, hey, you can participate in the sale sometimes. So really looking there, it is difficult if you only have one title, right? Mm -hmm. Because those companies are dealing with hundreds of people that only have one title. So if you're an independent author on your own, it's going to be hard to develop a relationship with your aggregator and then also develop a relationship with the library vendor, taking that first step of looking at local libraries and trying to get reviewed, that's going to help you get notice. And, you know, if you've got a lot of independent authors together supporting each other, maybe you have a um, email list that is a bunch of independent authors and they each put libraries on there that they've gotten in touch with and have given permission, you know, to be on that mailing list. There's all sorts of things that you can do there. Okay, great. And then is there a way for authors, let's say you've got a following, right? And parts of your following really want to access your audiobook through the libraries. Is there a way that authors can encourage their followers to help in the process? Definitely. Really, it's just saying to your followers, ask for the book at the library, because oftentimes libraries will acquire something that a patron has asked for. So, you know, they probably have a relationship with a local library. Ask them to see if that local library will purchase the title. So it sounds like in terms of some thinking about visibility in the library systems, it sounds like that's largely relying on either going to your local library or, or local libraries and developing those relationships with the the aggregators. And when we're talking about aggregators, we're talking about like find the... Away, find Away Voices, Authors Republic. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Big Happy Family. Right. Okay. Because is there a level at which we should be reaching out to places like Overdrive? Or is that not really feasible? So Overdrive, again, can't have 200 independent authors all coming at them. That's why they're using a place like Findaway. There are certain other things that you can do to develop some of these relationships on your own. You know, looking at a company like Publisher Spotlight, they take a bunch of different publishers into a library conference and put the titles out. So I still, to this day, work with LA Theater Works. They're a very small nonprofit. And so I can't afford a booth at ALA, but I want to get my product in front of librarians. So I go to Publisher Spotlight, I give them a little bit of product. You know, they charge me a piece of what it would cost for the whole booth. Right. And then I don't have to stand in the booth for four days. They do that. I can come in and out as I please if I'm going to travel to the conference or if I'm unable to travel to the conference, they're doing the work for me. Do you have other 
aside from Publisher Spotlight, do you have any other recommended places for authors to turn for that kind of service? Certainly places like IBPA have consolidated booths. You've got consolidated book vendors, things like that. So, and ALA even has a store that you can buy one spot in uh, on a regular conference floor and certainly on a digital floor. Great, great. So talk to us a little bit about the pricing and kind of the royalty systems. How do those function for audiobooks? So it's two different things. When you're talking about pricing, every individual, every publisher is slightly different. In the library market, you are likely to find an upcharge on an ebook or an audiobook because they're recognizing that that is going to go to more than one person. But that's not standard across the board. Every company is making their own decision as to what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about business models, in libraries, you've got different options. So the standard option that was really how the library market started with digital audio is what's called one book, one user. So you as the library buy the audiobook, and let's just use easy numbers. You, you pay $10 for that book and then you can circulate it. It's yours to keep, but only one person can take it out at a time. So if you're a library patron and you take it out, the next person has to wait in line. Right. Makes sense. That's why it's called One Book, One User. Right. A number of years ago, Hoopla actually premiered another type of model. And this is called the pay-per-circ model. So in the pay-per-circ model, it's available in the collection. The library has chosen to make it available And then you and me and my sister and my cousin and my daughter and my husband can all take it out at the same time. Now, the cost that the library pays for that is significantly less than on the one book, one user model. But you can quickly reach the same amount of money if multiple people are taking it out all at once. Now, the danger with that model for the library is that they have a limited budget. So they may do things like meter it or, you know, stop allowing circulations for a piece of, you know, the month, things like that. And that model has been very popular. And in fact, Overdrive has adopted that model as well. And you see it with a number of different library vendors now. Interesting. Yeah. Let's pause for a moment. We'll be right back. There is nothing like a great book to transport you to new worlds. Here at Pro Audio Voices, we love working on projects that transport the listener. We pay attention to the details, like making sure we have actors that can clearly differentiate the character voices, making for a great listening experience. If you have a book that you would like to get into audio, and you're looking for a team with a personalized approach, Pro Audio Voices might be just the right fit. Come visit us at ProAudioVoices.com. So do do users usually, the, the people who are taking it out, do they usually have any fee charged to them? No, when it's coming out of a public library, that's coming out of their tax dollars. So they're not paying at the library. Okay. Although in the old days of cassettes and CDs, when they had the big boxes to encourage you not to lose it, I would often see like a $1 circulation fee put on that. So it would went away with 20 audio or 20 CDs and hopefully it comes back with 20 <laughs> CDs. <laughs> right, right. 
And, you know, I, I still have people who ask me about, do you know, getting CD sets into libraries. Is that still happening? It is. I think, you know, it's interesting because the CD is not the dominant format by any stretch of the imagination. However, in America, we often keep cars for a very long time and CD players were still pretty standard in cars even a couple of years ago. So before the pandemic, I did a lot of travel and I would rent a car and I would always bring a CD because I want to use my cell phone to do the, you know, Google Maps, finding my way around. And I didn't want my book to be interrupted. So (laughs) I'd bring a CD. And, you know, sometimes I'd have to pick a different car at the lot. They didn't have a CD player, but that was very rare. So CDs have still been doing a business in the US, tends to be with online retailers or with libraries. Yeah. Now, pandemic hits, libraries are not open for business except digitally. So that's shifting some of the potential revenue and circulations away from the CD and more towards digital. A lot of people woke up and realized, oh, there are free digital materials at my library. Perhaps I should take advantage of those. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's forced a lot of changes, hasn't it? Um, In so many ways. I think in some good ones. And as yeah. well, yeah, we'll see what lasts when, you know, the world opens up again. <laughs> right, right. What would you say are the, you know, if we have listeners who who do have, you know, some budget to attend library conferences, would you like to name the top ones so that they can, you know, pay attention to those? Sure. The American Library Association Conference every year in June Uh, That's a very good one. It's big and it has a wide range of libraries. So if you are more towards a school library audience or more towards a university library audience, there's enough librarians there that you're really going to probably find someone who's interested in your product. My personal favorite is the Public Library Association Conference. That's every other year, usually in February or March. And that's a bit smaller, but it's more focused on those public libraries. So, you know, you're, you're not getting so many academic or special libraries. You're getting people who are buying for systems and for individual libraries that are looking for less niche product and more, you know, pure book product. Mm-hmm. What would you say, are you seeing that audiobooks in the mix is really as full a presence or is there, is it? Yeah, yeah. I, I would say definitely before ebooks were a big thing, right? Yeah. Audiobooks were already digital. They were already available through Overdrive. You know, for years I'd go to Overdrive Digipalooza conference and there was a lot of focus on the audio product. And I do think that we all are doing so much these days with our eyes in terms of computers and smartphones that people are looking for a break. So audio itself as an industry has seen eight years of double-digit growth. And a good piece of that is because people are listening and taking products out of the library. And uh, it's been an incredible ride, really. This, the, <laughs> the steep curve of growth has been uh, amazing and wonderful from my perspective. Yeah, um, I keep thinking I should quit because I should get out while we're on top, right? right. It's, like, <laughs> it's like a stocks, right? <laughs> yeah, beautiful. And okay, so let's talk about, I want to circle back to what you said about getting a review in a journal. 
what would yes. you say? What are the the best, what are your tips? What are the best ways that people can pursue that? It's really reaching out to the right contact at that particular journal and saying, here is why you should consider my book. Doing it respectfully, not bombarding anyone, but giving a really good sales pitch as to why your book should be listened to, or in the case of an ebook, you know, read with your eyes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when you say, uh, I, I like that you used the word, the right contact. So dive into that just a little bit more. So if you're just sending to an info at email, that's probably not going to go anywhere. You know, finding out specifically who the reviewer is and making a pitch of a more personal nature to that reviewer is the way to go. Now there's, for independent authors, there's lots of different, you know, paid review programs through people like Publishers Weekly and all that, that can get you closer to a more guaranteed review. And those are important tools because Library Journal is not going to take a thousand pitches and be able to, you know, respond to all of them. Right. So it's interesting because I'm thinking about how, you know, so often we, I think in the independent publisher association, you know, in that world that we're often thinking that, okay, reviews are great, but we're also we're mostly thinking about how they will they will impact individual purchasers, individual customers. And so here we're looking at more about how they will impact influencers in a different kind of way. Correct. Because yeah. that librarian might be buying for 50 libraries. Right. So you could sell 50 copies through one influencer. Right. Right. So that sounds like a very worthy investment. It is. I, you know, I, I know that for independent authors, there's so much love that goes into the labor of writing a title. And the unfortunate thing for you is once you've written the title, your work is not nearly done. That's right. Because it is, you know, marketing yourself and finding ways to utilize your existing network to help you get the word out. Yeah. Let's go even just a little further down that rabbit hole of getting the review, finding the right contact, what it, what would that research look like that would be that that an author would do to try and figure out who is the right person? Where are they looking? What are they looking for? They're generally not hiding. So, you know, most websites or mastheads within the printed magazine will tell you who the book reviews editor is or the audiobooks editor. So they're not trying to make it mysterious. Yeah. Okay. And then, you know, assuming most authors will have all three formats of their book. And yes. uh, so if we, if someone is, let's say they're focused, maybe more on, maybe they're not focused on any particular format necessarily, but they, you know, there's somebody who's going to review audiobooks and someone who's going to review books in their genre. Do they approach both of them? Yes. Okay, great. You know, if you've got all formats, exploit it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anything that you would add? I mean, we've covered a lot of territory in a really short amount of time. The only other thing that I am thinking about that we maybe haven't quite gone down that that path so much is when we talked about pricing or how that works. If we were to look at it from the royalty side of things. So let's say if we're in this model that uh, was developed by Hoopla, that where they're renting essentially out to their 
their people and they're having to pay royalties for each of those rentals. Can you tell us anything more about that model from the royalty side of things? Yeah, I wouldn't really consider that a royalty model so much. That's a revenue model, right? So they sell a product and they are splitting that revenue with you or in most cases with you via an aggregator, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't know what the deal is, like find a ways deal and Big Happy Families deal and Authors Republic's deal. Each of those deals with Overdrive might be slightly different. Right, okay. Mm -hmm. But all you know is that you're getting your percentage of the money that is coming through the door. Yeah, great. All right. So now I'm just going to ask you a very general question, and that is, do you have any other recommendations, tips, things that that our listeners may want to know as the authors of books that are now also in audio? Yes. Well, a couple of things. First of all, good job for getting it in audio, because making your intellectual property as widely available as possible is generally a good plan. You know, there's maybe 17% of people who don't read with their eyes, but who only read with their ears. So now you have a chance to reach those people as well. To me, whenever you're bringing out a book, whether you're a publisher or an independent author, you really have to think about how are you using your network to spread the word? So everything from if you have an audio and you've got some codes, mindfully giving those codes to people who will review as opposed to just sending them out willy-nilly, you're much more likely to get the result that you're looking for, which is actually a review. So as you go into publishing your title, regardless of format, have a plan and make sure that you are using all the tools at your disposal. And that is a lot of mining that network, letting people know and helping letting them help you get the word out. You're one person, but you probably know 20 people. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask one last question on reviews since you brought it up again. And that is, you know, so many authors are focused on getting reviews on Amazon. Right, because that's consumer review. That's right. different. Yeah. Right. So the question is, do those reviews help at all in terms of getting into library systems? It's not likely that they will because the librarians are not looking at that as a source. They're looking again at, you know, audiophile book lists, library journal, those types of professional reviews, really, where people are not just, you know, buying a product. You can rate a vacuum on Amazon. You can also rate an audiobook on Amazon. We all have an opinion. Whereas a journal is generally paying someone to mindfully read with their eyes or their ears, the product, to write about the product. And then it goes through a process of being edited to make sure that even the writing in what is generally not that long a review is good. So it's a lot of time and effort put into something, but the potential eyes and ears are much larger. Yeah, yeah. Do you know about how many reviews are done by Audiophile Magazine these days in a given month? Uh, Yeah, it's about uh, 200 reviews a month, about 50 reviews a week, 2,500 reviews a year. Oh, that is awesome. Yeah, (laughs) you know those stats really well. It's true. Uh, I am the publisher of Audiofile Magazine, so I should know these things. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, great. So any other tips about actually getting reviewed through Audiofile? 
It's the same tip. So you send an email to, in this case, editor at audiophilemagazine.com. If you have it up and available on Audible, all you have to do is send a link. If it's before publication, that's always helpful. And then you send a link to like a Dropbox or a, you know, you send it, any of those things. And, you know, a short, meaningful message about why your title should be looked at is important. Michelle, I want to thank you so much. I know you are a very busy person. I really, really appreciate you taking this time with us. So thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. And, uh, you know, all those authors out there, keep writing. Beautiful. All right. Again, thank you for joining us. This has been a conversation with Michelle Cobb, audio and digital publishing consultant, also with Audio Publishers Association, Audiophile Magazine, as well as PubWest. Thank you. I also want to let everyone know that uh, Michelle will be presenting to Bay Area Independent Publishers Association on October 2nd, 2021. And we would love to have you join us for that. All the meetings are available via Zoom meeting. So no matter where you are in the world, you can certainly check that out. You can find more information at BAPA.org. That is B-A-I-P-A, Bay Area Independent Publishers Association. Again, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for joining us for Audiobook Connection, behind the scenes with the creative teams. Please take a moment to subscribe at audiobookconnection.com. The podcast is sponsored by Pro Audio Voices, helping great stories come alive through audiobook production and marketing. Learn more at proaudiovoices.com. Again, thanks for being with us, and please join us next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.